think, as I said, people would always make this snap judgment of, oh, you're funny and you want to be an actor and you're overweight. Well, then you'll be like John Candy or Chris Farley. And, and first of all, they're geniuses and I would be lucky to have 10% of what they had. But I knew they weren't comparing my talent to theirs. They were comparing my size. I didn't want there to be, oh, yeah, he's an actor, but, you know, he gets extra points because he's a funny fat guy. I just wanted to be standard. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to actor and comedian Josh Peck. If you're someone who grew up on Nick at Night, like I did, you know Josh as the lovably goofy brother in the wildly successful kids show, Drake and Josh. You probably even know his catchphrase, which I'm not gonna butcher, but it's... Hug me, brother! <laughs> May I? Hug me, brother! The show was a massive success and in some ways made Josh's career. But in other ways, this early success didn't help him at all personally. Outside of Drake and Josh, Josh has dealt with some incredibly difficult circumstances. He grew up in near poverty with a single mother, he struggled with his weight early on, and developed body image issues, which was funny for his on-screen persona, but not funny when the cameras were off, and a drug addiction, which he's working on to this very day. His story of going from child star to the career he has built for himself now is full of ups and downs, but inspirational throughout. And it's all covered in his new memoir, Happy People Are Annoying, which is out now. We started by talking about the title. You're coming out with a book very soon called Happy People Are Annoying. Why the title? Uh, because of the book advance. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I wrote it because happiness to me has always been reserved for attractive people and like people with inherited wealth or quarterbacks. I just thought it was like this elite class that I, I might never attain the ranks of. And I figured that like this manual had been handed out at birth because I would observe people living their life and they seemed like unencumbered by all the things that I was. Um, it, it seemed lost on me. I just didn't naturally know how to find my way through this world. So just existing was exhausting and happiness felt like, well, that's Disney world. I, I might, I may never even get to go see that. And this whole book was how I had to define what happiness was for me through a, just a 20 year journey. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah. A really short period of time. <laughs> well, I want to rewind, but Today, you know, Josh Peck today, would you say you're happy? Well, I think the, the whole conceit of the book is like, I think whatever this version of happiness is, is overrated. The one that I thought existed um, to me, like happiness is just like a set of fleeting emotions that in no way can be something that sticks around at all times. Like, I think the greatest piece of relief that I've ever been given that's allowed me like a semblance of a baseline contentment is this idea that like as surely as good times are coming, bad times are coming, and they will be interlocked in this dance 
to the end of time. It sounds like so much of it is based on just an unreasonable expectation, mm. almost similarly to how like people have a very specific expectation of what relationships look like. And a lot of people believe like relationships are, their expectation is the honeymoon phase of a relationship, but that's not necessarily real. And if you set that expectation, it can leave people disappointed, maybe unnecessarily. Oh my gosh, that's such a great point. So you say early on in your book that all of us are born from a certain level of generational trauma, mm. right? Like the, the people that we become, the behaviors that we have, the, these stories we hold on to are based on trauma that we've experienced. Tell me about your upbringing, uh, you know, what childhood Josh was like and the traumas that you faced that kind of defined you for a better part of your life. Well, I think the reason I sort of make a, a pretty sweeping bold statement, like, you know, we're all an amalgamation of traumas. I mean, there, there's new science being born out of like epigenetics and this idea of like transgenerational trauma can change the way that, that your chromosomes sort of talk to each other. And so I look at like, I mean, you and I like we're part of the tribe, but Jews in the, in the early 1900s, especially in the East Coast, I mean, the level of trauma they were dealing with, which even if they weren't, you know, face to face with the horrors of what was going on in Europe, a lot of them came to America with no money, no opportunity, like had to deal with poverty and living in all these extreme circumstances. And that's what my grandmother specifically dealt with. And so she was just trying to survive. And then she has my mom who's, you know, being raised by someone who's doing their best, but not totally equipped. But similarly, you know, I, I didn't have a dad. So that informed a lot of my early sort of childhood experience and, and being very overweight were these like two things coupled with a little financial security that was like, ooh, this feels like slightly more challenging than your quasi-normal experience. And I think you mentioned somewhere uh, in the book that you weren't quote unquote happy for a number of years in your childhood. And I guess my question for you is, were you not happy because you were dealing with all of these different things? Your weight, being raised by a single mother, not having a father figure, financial insecurity, or were you not happy because you had an unreasonable expectation, even at that age, of what happiness should look like? That's a great point, right? Because like real or perceived trauma what's, you know, is it real or valid? And I guess certainly when I look back on things now, I think, oh, you should have just chilled out a little bit, Josh. It wasn't that bad. But of course, I wasn't equipped with any of the tools I have now as a grown man. And so I don't know how to reconcile that because I know what you mean. And I think you're right. I surely do look back in some scenarios and be like, was it that bad being overweight? Like people still really loved you. But also, I'll have people read this book and I, you know, you tell me you read it. I, I don't know, but I was trying to be funny. Like I didn't want it to be like this sad account. Well, I think, you know, what I found fascinating about it is for me, it had the fingerprint of one of the tools that you've used for the better majority of your life to navigate some of these traumas and challenges you've had. And my read of that is that's humor. Like uh, in so many of these parts of the book where you talk about struggle and you tend to use like self-deprecation and humor. And it feels like that has been such an important tool in your life to handle your trauma. And I'm sure you've found that as you've gotten further in life, it was a great short-term tool, but it didn't actually get to the heart 
of a lot of these challenges that you had been facing and you're trying to figure out answers to? I think that's a great point. My mom and I were in New York, you know, single mom, only child. I call us like a scrappy startup. And, you know, most of our life was spent as like lower middle class. And then we'd have periods where we were out of money and having to figure out where we were going to sleep that night. And then totally periods where we could, you know, go to Atlantic City and stay at Bally's. I don't mean to brag, but um, <laughs> so, um, so at nine years old, I decide because I'm obsessed with television and I've watched my mom be funny my whole life that I wanted to try to find an agent to maybe get on this television thing that I was so obsessed with. And there was a magazine in New York called, um, I mean, it wasn't just New York, but it was like the showbiz magazine. And I remember opening it and finding this advertisement for Sid Gold at Gold Star Entertainment. And he said, I rep comedians of all ages. And I said, well, I certainly qualify. I am of all ages. And I went and, <laughs> <laughs> I went and met him and he said, you know, I can get you a couple minutes of, of time at, at Caroline's Comedy Club in Midtown you can put an act together. And you're nine years old at this point. <laughs> I was nine. And that became my life. Wild. I was getting snuck in this, you know, Catch Rising Star, Stand Up New York, Gotham. You know, they would sneak me in through the back so that they wouldn't lose their liquor license. And that kind of was my first foray in the showbiz. And like I say in the book, Colin Quinn has this great quote where he says, you know, comedy is as close to justice as it gets. And because there's no interpreting laughter, you know, like acting can be subjective. Comedy is clear. If it doesn't get the laugh, it didn't work. And at nine years old, when I'm looking for any sort of clarity, any validation, anything that's like, that, that is as true as like scientific law, it's like you can't debate me on whether I got this, this laugh or not. Out of pure necessity, Josh found strength in his ability, drive, and talent as a comedian and soon was able to lift himself and his mother into a better financial situation. More than that, he found his calling, and with that, an identity that he could hang his hat on. But being a comedian and consistently getting laughs wasn't enough for him. The pool of validation was running dry for nine-year-old Josh, and it had to do with his body image. I think it was being overweight and knowing that I walked into a room at a disadvantage that people made a snap judgment about you, that you were slovenly or you lacked willpower. I mean, granted, we've all done so much better in body positivity. There's all these beautiful, necessary movements, but in the 90s, it wasn't. Like, I, I would see a look cross people's face uh, and I walk into a room where I was like, a comment about my weight is coming. I just wonder when, because I knew. And they'd be like, oh, like, you know, careful there. Like, uh, you know, who needs seconds or, you know, it, it just would be like some like hacky, crappy joke. hundred percent. And you just mentioned that quote about uh, comedy and how comedy is like the, the purest form of objectivity in terms of at least working or not working. Yeah. But I think the other awesome quote that you had is the quote that the reason why people are funny is usually not funny at all. And I just think it, it, it perfectly sums up, you know, a lot of probably your own personal pain that was, that you were trying to reconcile and to your point, didn't have the tools for at the time. And this was one of your tools. To that point, you know, obviously moving out to Drake and Josh, right? Like really was a, a breakout in your early career. And also it was a big part of my childhood, but 
you, you describe in the book, right? Like everyone really celebritizes the experience and you do an amazing job of breaking down, you know, the numbers of the show and how this wasn't the show that you were going to retire on Drake and Josh. Sure. Very realistically, there was other shit you were going to have to do. But what I'm interested about is what did your struggle with your weight, uh, kind of this feeling that you had to just follow the footsteps of Chris Farley. Were you very insecure about that throughout the time that you were working on the show? Yeah, I was extremely insecure about that. And I think, as I said, people would always make this snap judgment of, oh, you're funny and you want to be an actor and you're overweight. Well, then you'll be like John Candy or Chris Farley. And, and first of all, they're geniuses and I would be lucky to have 10% of what they had. But I knew they weren't comparing my talent to theirs. They were comparing my size. And that the funny fat guy was like, people had a Pavlovian response and people assumed, oh, I know what you are. I love this. Now do the thing that I expect of you and nothing else. And I didn't want to be special. And if I was going to be an actor, I didn't want there to be a caveat. I didn't want there to be, oh yeah, he's an actor, but you know, he gets extra points because he's a funny fat guy. I just wanted to be standard. What Josh is describing here is this toxic notion that people definitely weren't commonly conscious of in the 90s and for a good part of the 2000s. And that is this idea of quote unquote normal, normal beauty standards, normal mental health standards, normal financial standards that quite frankly, Josh didn't feel like he was a part of. And it's not as simple as saying that the solution is self-acceptance. Because when the system you're born into doesn't allow you to accept yourself, what is the solution? On top of all of this, Drake and Josh was ending, and Josh had to start from the bottom all over again, and he had to find a job to support his family. I was in no position to feel like I'd made it when the show was over because, you know, and, and I hate talking about money, but I just wanted to be clear in the book to give people an idea because... Yeah, share, share the numbers. I want people to hear it. Because I think it's a bit of a misnomer. You know, at the median amount of money we made for Drake and Josh at that time on kids television was $15,000 an episode. But I basically break it down that we made 60 episodes, so that's 900 grand, which is certainly a lot of money. But then over five years, which that's how long it took us to shoot 60 episodes... And after 20% to agent manager, 30% to taxes, you're making roughly a hundred grand a year that my mom and I were living on in Los Angeles. So, you know, we had a two bedroom apartment at an Avalon with really nice amenities. So, you know, I, I was living quite large, but when we were done, I had at best 16 months of runway left. Um, it just was not like the stories you hear about the kid from two and a half men or from Modern Family where you're truly set for life. It's interesting, right? Because you talk about that question, you know, were we good? Was it just an anomaly? It's a similar question that I think entrepreneurs ask themselves as well, right? It's a question I ask myself all the time. You know, we've had Morning Brew. Morning Brew has seen some level of success. Yeah. But like the question that's always been in the back of my mind of was I lucky or was I good? How much pressure, like I know you had to keep working because you have to keep making money. But tell me, did you feel pressure to basically keep the momentum and stay relevant to people? No, if anything, I, I think I was hell-bent on exercising my origin story out of the zeitgeist. I, I, I wanted to erase it. I wanted people to forget that I'd ever been overweight 
I didn't mind the Drake and Josh of it all. I wasn't as hyped as maybe people were on it, but I just was like, I just intrinsically knew that if I am defined by this thing forever, it, it, it might be golden handcuffs. And, and certainly now 20 years later, I'm like, okay, I'm defined by this thing forever, (laughs) but I have a fondness for it because of how many families I've met over the years who, who so enjoyed watching it. And it, it means the world. And I feel very lucky, but you know, when I was 16, I did this movie called Mean Creek and it was like the first role that I played as, as an overweight actor that wasn't the bully or the best friend, which it seemed at that size, at that age, that was the only parts you were allowed to play. He was like this fully realized character where I, this little independent movie we made in Oregon for like 300 grand. And I remember it went to Sundance and it won these awards and the reaction was like spectacular. And suddenly I was like, oh, comedy's always come slightly natural, but wow, I've been able to now play within the ranks of like a real actor and this is what I want. And then this movie, The Wackness, where I'm playing like this drug dealer in 1994 in New York. And I was a drug addict who like really just wanted to go on dates at that exact same age. So yes, like the creative God certainly will put certain things in your life at the time where you're like, I know how to bring something 100% that is myself and truthful to this part. Josh found himself in this phase where his life was imitating the very art that he was a part of, but in all of the wrong ways. Now, it didn't stop there for him. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to get deeper into Josh's family life, his addictions, and how he overcame all of it. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Okay, so... I want to get into the moment when you decided to turn to drugs for validation. Um, But first, I want to get into the way that you've reconciled a really difficult relationship, a relationship that you didn't have with your dad. If I remember correctly, the first time you even saw a photo of him was the year that he passed away, right? You were, I think, 24. Yeah, I, I saw a really bad photo of him at 24 he was in a wedding party. So he's one of like 50 people in a photo, but yeah, he passed away a year later. But I, I spent a lot of my life as a young man, adolescence, and and as a teenager, sort of setting men up in my life to disappoint me because I made this secret agreement with them that they were not privy to, that they were going to be these surrogate father figures to me. And then I had to deal with, you know, going through all the growing pains of becoming a man and losing the weight and, and eventually drugs and alcohol. And, and so then I became a man, but all of a sudden I would notice in relationships that I would, at the moment there was sort of natural conflict that, that arises in all relationships, I would bolt. So suddenly I'm mirroring the bad behavior of this guy I've never met. 
right? Because he was great at leaving. And I think because my foundation was so rocked by this idea of if 50% of your parental system can leave, then nothing is permanent. And better I leave this relationship now because we can't disagree on where to get takeout from than to have my heart broken. I I called it the Tony Montana complex. I was going to show you how okay I'd be without you, how little I actually needed you. And so I had to face all these things and and then when my, and it was painful. And I remember at 25, 26, like my dad was in his eighties and I knew it. And I was like, shit, here I am. Like, I've got a little bit of money in the bank and I was sober at the time. And I was like, I don't need anything from this guy, but what do I get? Like, I get this older invalid dad and then he passed away and I, and I lost that opportunity. I mean, you seem incredibly self-aware of around the the story that you had, the way that it manifested. But what I'm curious about is like you said you've done 20 years of work now on this stuff. And then even as you got into drugs and alcohol, how did you deal with your emotions? What was the way that you processed your emotions? Did you allow yourself to have emotions? Did you even think about these things or did you push them down into your body and kind of force everything that you were trying to feel away because it was painful to deal with? Like, how do you handle all of the anger towards yourself as well as to, in this example, your dad? It's a great question. You know, growing up in New York with like my mom and a bunch of other like cerebral Jews, it it seemed like everybody talked about their fucking feelings at nauseam. And I was like, oh my God, I just want to stop talking. Like my godmother... It was a shrink. It, it seemed like all my mom's friends were all shrinks. All my mom will hate that I said this, but like all people that like used to be her shrink and then became her friend. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that breaks <laughs> ethical lines. <laughs> and That's amazing. It totally does. <laughs> always MFT, never PhD. I don't know what that says. <laughs> um, and, um, and I was just like, oh my god, and and I just didn't want to talk about it anymore. I remember when I was a kid, and it's not, my mom did did an incredible job. And I remember, because she could tell, even at 12, I was like a uncomfortable, pretty angry kid. And so we went to go see this therapist. And I just remember falling to tears because I was just so embarrassed that we were like talking to this stranger about like what was going on between us. So yeah, I didn't want to talk about it. And that's probably why it manifested in being 300 pounds because I just stuffed it. And then when I found drugs and alcohol, I was like, oh, this is so much more efficacious and less calories. <laughs> <laughs> For a creative and emotionally empathetic kid like Josh was, it seemed like he could channel his vulnerability into his work, but not towards himself. He didn't forgive himself for what he perceived as flaws and only allowed grace to the characters that he played. Meanwhile, Josh's actual self continued to go down this pit of bad decisions, and then he found cocaine. Tell me how you got into drugs and alcohol. Well, I I lost 100 pounds, and I thought I'd I'd hit the finish line. Like I thought that's where happiness was. And, And I did it at a time where I imagined that, oh, I got in right before the buzzer. Like, I'm 18 now and I'm young and I can have a life. I missed out on some, you know, good teenage years, but because I held myself back just socially feeling uncomfortable in my own skin, but now I can really grab life by the horns. And then of course 
I was the same head in a new body. So when I discovered drugs, which of course happened one night when a girl was being nice to me, and that that was the only incentive I needed to do any sort of self-harm. Which, which, by the way, the first time I believe you were offered, you stayed strong, you held your ground and you said no. But then later on, you did not say no the next time you're out with this girl that you describe in the book. Oh, yeah. I The first time I was like, what are you, crazy? What are we, in Pulp Fiction? <laughs> like, this is nuts. And I, I say that it's wonderful how the world conspires to help you when you've decided to, to do something bad. And you know, days later, her and I are alone in the same scenario and she offers it to me. And I remember thinking right before I did it. And it was Coke, right? It was Coke at the time. It was cocaine. Yes. I was being a total uh, actor cliche and I, uh, yeah, but I, I just remember like thinking, I don't know if this is going to make me feel, and I don't care. All I care is that she's watching. I, I talk about in the book how I wasn't trying to kill myself. I was trying to kill the part of me that wouldn't let me live. That committee that would wake up a few minutes before me every morning and tell me all the reasons why I wasn't enough and why life wasn't going to work out for a guy like me. And then anything bad that happened was but a preview of more bad to come. And when I did the cocaine in that bathroom with her, I remember that night we went to a party because that's what, you know, kids do. And I'm walking around and I'm like having a great time and I had a drink and I was very conversational and, and I felt attractive and confident. And I remember I got in bed that night and I'm, I'm thinking about sort of the last couple hours and how well everything went. And then I realized, oh no, this doesn't track. You, you don't like parties. You're uncomfortable at parties. Like. <laughs> How, how in the world did that happen? And then I go, oh, it was the drugs. Like, hi, Josh is incredible at parties. And for the first time in my life, getting to take that deep breath that I had always been searching for to like finally feel somewhat at peace, I remember it just triggering in my mind the thought of, I never want to feel any other way. And that's how the next four years went. Josh told me about this quote that he uh, he laughs about from his time in recovery. And it goes, it goes like this. The number one solution for a drug addict or an alcoholic is drugs and alcohol. The problem is they have very diminishing returns. Now, the second best sort of solution is recovery. But unfortunately for Josh, he had to hit rock bottom before he could start on his journey towards getting better. I spent the next four years basically burning down everything I'd built as an actor. I wasn't a monster. I was just a bummer. I was just like incredibly unreliable, slightly unhinged. I I would show up late or not at all to things. I was just completely in like my own self-centered spiral. I also was just personally hurting the people who were close to me. Like when you're in the depths of your addiction, the great lie we all tell ourselves is that we're only hurting ourselves. But in my experience, we become quite nuclear and start radiating anyone who's dumb enough to love us and can't get away in time. And there was dangerous moments where it was, you know, running from the police because I had a proclivity for alerting them to my bad behavior. Assuming there was some sort of incentive involved if you were like the first to notify them, but there isn't. Uh, 
Wait, you wait, you would actually call the police? Yeah, I called the police on myself once when I was driving erratically and someone tried to pull me out of my car because they thought I was a danger to society. And I, I called the police. I was like, hey, this, this guy tried to pull me out of my car. And they were like, well, what car are you in? And I was like, I'm in a black BMW. They were like, we got seven calls about you. Pull over. And I was like, I got to go. <laughs> and oh my god yeah man there were so many close calls and for some reason i'm literally outing myself in this book um because i was incredibly lucky like i this could have gone unnoticed but there were certainly so many moments where i could have had a very unflattering mugshot on tmz was your mom or uh your close friends aware of how bad it was my mom wasn't for the first two years, and then she was surely aware of it. And But she had been in 12-step for her own stuff, so she was like very keenly aware of what was going on with me. And also knowing how powerless you are unless that person really hits a bottom and wants to get help. But it definitely killed me. I, I don't know if I tell this story in the book, but we kept making plans to see each other, and then I would just have a really late night and thinking, okay, like, if I'm going to see her on Wednesday, then if I can spend the next 24 hours just like drying out and not using like by Wednesday at noon, I'll be great. Like I just need a, a clean 24 hours. And and then every day I just couldn't do it. And so I push it to Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And finally, I remember my mom said, I mean, and we were going to islands, which is a nice establishment. And <laughs> and uh, I remember my mom just said, Josh, just forget it. Like, just forget it. It was just so hard on her. So there were more than one of those moments where I was like, oh, I'm killing her. It can't continue to do this. Well, and I give you so much credit for just having this deep self-awareness, right? In some ways, you truly had hit the mountaintop, yeah. right? Of proving to yourself that you could be this successful actor that wasn't tied to this old identity of like, you know, the jokey kid. But at the same time, it seems like you also acknowledged that you were empty in a lot of ways. And so what did the comeback look like, like to where you are today? Like what did the recovery look like to get to a place where you felt more full? I mean, thank God, you know, today, last month, I turned 14 years sober and I basically- Congrats, man. Thanks. I, I just, you know what? I just dealt myself all the way in. And I think it was because I had a lot of data to support. It wasn't just the four years of using, it was an entire lifetime of feeling uncomfortable and then also being very overweight for as long as I was. I had a lot of data to support that A, I overdo things and B yeah, you seem obsessive in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. I mean I'm still <laughs> I'm still dealing with that now. Like even I, I'm telling you, I, I I have a lot of work to do. But I bought myself in, I listened to suggestions from people that I respected who had the life that I wanted, be it in, in career or relationships. So I just, you know what, I, I, I did the work. I, I knew that if I, if I could stay sober, that I would have an opportunity in which to do the inner work. And I believed what people who had walked this road before me were telling me that on the other side was like a little bit of contentment and a good life as a result of good living. What, what specifically did inner work look like? Was it was it AA meetings? Was it a, a sponsor? Was it meditation? What did the the kind of the potpourri of things look like for you? Yeah, I've been in 12-step for 14 years, so I've found a lot of help through that. It's like there are no new ancient truths. I feel like 12-step 
organized religion, self-help, meditation, whatever your thing is. Like it's just a repackaging of what we've always known to be true, which is this idea of you got to get out of yourself. You know, you know, esteemable acts build self-esteem. Like once I made my peace with the idea that like nothing is immovable, everything is changing at all times was the first time where I could just say like, okay, I'm never going to be able to completely fortify myself against life. I love that. And so just comparing what motivated you to be an actor earlier in your career to what motivates you today, like has your motivation changed? Like literally that singular thing that acts as the fire under your ass. And also how much has career become more or less important to you in this journey? I know on like a deep level, I need to be able to just support my wife and my kid and take care of my mom. That's, that's of the utmost importance. I'll give you a great example. I had last year, I was lucky enough to have like a really great year of work. I worked on a couple of different projects that I really enjoyed. And I immediately got right back into acting class this year. Cause I knew that you can't, you know, last night's meal won't keep you fed. I have to stay vigilant. I have to keep loose. I don't want to get rusty. And I do this scene for my acting teacher and I've worked on it for the last week. And in the back of my mind, it's like, I've been working all year. I'm sure I'm in a great place. And she goes, yeah, you didn't consider this, did you? And she starts bringing up these things to me, which is why she's a great teacher of all the things I missed. And I was like, yeah. Ooh, like this <laughs> thing, I can't 20 years I've been doing this. And like, I still can't perfect it. I'm even shit sometimes. So I don't know. It's like this puzzle that, I'm just obsessed with conquering, knowing I never will conquer it. Well, I think, you know, it seems like you just, you really have like, you have this love for the art and you also just have a love for learning and growing. And to me, because perfection is impossible, but the journey to get as close as possible is addicting to you in a really healthy and positive way. Exactly, yeah. As long as you keep it in that sort of range, you're right. Well, this has been um, amazing. Thank you so much for telling your story. And it, you're super inspiring in just um, all the work that you've done. I love, I love chatting with you, man. Thank you so much. The beauty of this episode is that the journey isn't complete. Josh Peck is someone who is very much still finding himself. And I absolutely love his constant curiosity and his need to learn and grow as a person. In this interview and deeper in his book, we saw how this need sometimes led him astray towards an unhealthy attachment, whether it would be to food or to drugs. But in many ways, he wasn't given the fair shake so many of us take for granted. So I admire the steps that he has taken to make a better life for himself and for his family. And actually, just this week, Josh booked a role in Christopher Nolan's new movie. This is career-changing news and so deserving of a self-made person who has put in the work at every single level. And so if you enjoyed this conversation and you're now a fan of Josh and his story, check out his book, Happy People Are Annoying, for more on it. We left a link in this episode's show notes. It is amazingly uplifting entertaining, and it's just a really quick and easy read. And now, Imposters listeners, before we go, it's time for some reflection of my own. I found it so damn inspirational in the way that Josh harnessed his penchant for comedy and actualized his creativity at the age of nine to create a career for himself. 
it just shows how the power of creativity knows no bounds. And it made me think about my Founders Journal episode on how I have harnessed creativity. So I'm no Josh Peck, but if you don't know me, I am naturally a creative, which is kind of ironic, you know, since I built a business media brand, I worked in finance and sales and trading before, but I've been creative my whole life. In kindergarten, I remember I was in Miss Golo's class. I was so proud about making a two-in-one pen and highlighter where I literally sawed half of the pen off, half the highlighter, and then secured them back together with tape. I literally thought I was Isaac Newton. In third grade, I bought doodling books to learn how to be an amazing doodler. And in college, I started writing this little business newsletter because I thought business news was dry. That turned into Morning Brew. All of that to say, I love everything about being creative. The satisfaction of wrestling with my imagination and the possibilities that are created by thinking outside of the box. So I want to tell you the three reasons to listen to your inner voice and lean into your creativity. First, creativity is so important because it's a synonym for problem solving. Creativity is the tool that gets you through tough situations. So to nerd out for a second, I've been loving this show called The Witcher. And in the show, one of the main characters has the power to open a portal that takes you far away from where you currently are. And she pretty much exclusively opens these portals when she's stuck in a really shitty situation and doesn't have any options. In my mind, creativity is that portal for professionals and for people in life. The second reason creativity is so important is because it is the source of all progress. Tim Urban, who's the now famous writer of Wait But Why, an amazing blog, has this great way of illustrating my thoughts around this. The main point that Tim makes is that far too often, we look back at all of the doors that we have closed throughout our life, and we don't look enough at the doors that are open in front of us from this point moving forward. Creativity is being stuck in a job that you don't love and thinking through all of your options from most obvious to least obvious, whether it's a lateral move, an uncomfortable but potential breakthrough conversation with your boss, starting a consultancy, going back to school, looking for a new job, becoming a creator on the internet, applying to a startup accelerator. The options are endless for all of us. And creativity allows you to go from a closed scarcity mindset to one of abundance. And finally, the third reason creativity is so important is because creativity compounds like money. The vast majority of thoughts that we have and ideas that we come up with are by definition not creative in the sense that they're not totally original. And that's why true creativity, true original ideas move people in such a big way. And for Josh Peck, his creativity compounded into an entire career that he didn't know was even possible. He changed his entire life by believing in his voice as a comic actor. And with these principles, you can as well. Let us know what you think of this practice of creativity at imposters at morningbrew.com. We would love to hear from you. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our show is produced by Michaela Heck and Vishnu Vallabhaneni. Our executive producer is Brian Henry, and our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Alan Haberchak is the director of audio at Morning Brew, and Sarah Singer is our VP of multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.